I want to get right into the message this morning. I wasn't even supposed to be preaching today, but I got a little text message from Pastor Quasey saying, not going to make it, it's all yours. So praise the Lord, here we are. Bible says be ready, in season and out. And I want to begin by reading an article that I read yesterday. This magazine just came in the mail yesterday. It's the latest Charisma magazine. And the editor of Charisma magazine is a gentleman named Marcus Yours, Y-O-A-R-S. And his column is called Yours Truly, (laughs) Y-O-A-R-S, Truly. And it seemed to just go right along with what the Lord has been ministering to my heart. And the title of his article is, Will the Real Church Please Stand Up? Will the Real Church Please Stand Up? And the title of my message, which is going to follow reading this article, is, Why Are We Following Jesus? Why Are We Following Jesus? So here's portions of his message, Will the Real Church Please Stand Up? says, millions in America label themselves Christian, yet don't follow Christ. It's time the church defined itself by the marks of true discipleship. By today's standards in the American church, Jesus wasn't cut out to be a pastor, nor would his ministry be highlighted as a model for church planters. Consider these facts. Jesus had the greatest preaching, teaching, and healing ministry in history. Thousands came to hear him, followed his every move, and lined the streets to get a glimpse of him or simply touch him. Yet, amid his rock star popularity, he intentionally offended religious leaders, challenged potential mega-donors, and weeded out casual followers with tough teachings. Got real quiet. So quiet, I'm going to read that sentence again. Thousands came to hear him, followed his every move, lined the streets to get a glimpse of him, or to simply touch him. Yet amid his rock star popularity, he intentionally offended religious leaders, challenged potential mega-donors, and weeded out casual followers with tough teachings. Not exactly the textbook strategy you'd find today to grow your church, much less your Facebook likes and Twitter followers. After Jesus spent three and a half years ministering to thousands, his church consisted of only 120 disciples. Just 120 disciples gathered in the upper room. And even that was a low turnout, considering he had appeared to more than 500 people after his resurrection, according to 1 Corinthians 15. And we know the rest of the story, how the 120 quickly became 3,120 and grew daily to where even unbelievers credited Jesus' followers as those who, quote, have turned the world upside down, Acts 17.6. The truth is, we know that Jesus' divine church growth tactics surpass all others, 
with the proof being a global church that 2,000 years later refuses to die while it works to fulfill his great commission. Why then do we in the 21st century American church focus on all of the elements that Jesus didn't? He focused on training and equipping 12 disciples. We focus on growing our crowds and spheres of influence, regardless of whether those people follow Jesus. He preached an uncompromising message of truth. We sugarcoat the gospel until we're we're saccharine high on deception. He walked among his enemies in love. We ostracize our enemies by blasting them for all their sins. Indeed, most of the U.S. church is enamored with size over substance and microwave growth over true reproduction. Research shows that while 235 million people call themselves Christians in the U.S., only 40% of those meet regularly with fellow believers, and only a fourth at most read the Bible on a regular basis. It's time we discovered the marks of the real church, measured by Jesus standards rather than our own trendy metrics. So what are those elements? Here are just a few, and he lists four. Love, prayer, persecution, and power. Love. Jesus defined a premier characteristic of his church in John thirteen thirty five. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If we can't even love fellow believers... And I like this, if we skewer each other over theological differences and cultural preferences, how can we expect the world to want what we have? Transforming the world with God's love starts right where we are on the home front as we learn to love each other as Christ loved us. Number two, prayer. Jesus was constantly communicating with the Father, listening to his thoughts and seeing where he was already moving. Luke's gospel shows that little happened in Christ's life without him first praying. Why then do most church gatherings today focus so little on prayer? In trying to be culturally relevant and seeker-sensitive, we've conveyed that this essentiality of our faith, both individually and corporately, is secondary. That can't be if we want to mimic Jesus. Number three, persecution. We in the West equate religious freedom and the lack of persecution with blessing. Yet when you look for the most powerful churches in the world where the Spirit moves freely and in fullness, you'll always find persecution. It's time we wake up and realize that persecution galvanizes and unifies the body of Christ like few other pressures. Remember, Jesus promised persecution to those who truly follow Him. Matthew 5 and John 15. When was the last time You saw this promise fulfilled in your own life or church. And finally, power. Jesus also promised that his followers would do greater works than he did. John 14, 12. A promise sealed by, (coughs) excuse me, a promise sealed by the gift of the Holy Spirit to empower us. 
Wherever the early apostles and church went, the, the miraculous followed. Though there have been seasons of Holy Spirit revival in our nation, even charismatic churches today are de-emphasizing such things as praying for the sick, demonic deliverance, or the prophetic. Making room for the Spirit's supernatural movement isn't an option. It's the mark of those who truly follow Christ. Will the real church please stand up? My message won't be nearly as eloquent and profound as that message, but I think you're getting the gist of what I believe the Holy Spirit is saying to Western nations like America. We're losing. We're losing the battle. We're losing the culture. And I don't care about these numbers. 200 million Christians. It can't possibly be when you look at the state of the nation. If we had that much salt and that much light, if we had that many true disciples of Jesus Christ running around America, we would not see the nation in the spiritual and moral shambles that it is in today. And we need to listen very carefully to what the Spirit of God is saying to the churches in these last days. These are the last of the last days. I I hate to sound like a broken record, but I'll keep repeating it more and more as we get even closer. But we are right on the edge. Jesus is coming soon. He is preparing his church. He's calling out a bride. He's calling out true disciples that want to follow him with their whole heart, with a covenant, with a commitment. And so the title of my message goes very nicely with this article that we've just read. Why are we following Jesus? And this isn't just a cute message. I want you to be asking some very hard questions today. Why am I following Jesus? Why am I sitting in this church right now? Why do I call myself a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? What am I communicating to others when I tell them I am a believer, I am a disciple, I am a follower of Jesus? And to begin, I want us to go to the Gospel of John, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time today in one chapter, John chapter 6. And as I was pondering a number of things in John chapter 6 this morning, something jumped out at me. If you have the NIV Bible, and you don't have to, but if you do, you'll notice that sometimes there are subheadings. And I noticed that in John chapter 6, there are four subheadings. And it sounds very strange when you read all four of them right in a row. And just, just listen. Number one, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Number two, Jesus walks on the water. Number three, Jesus, the bread of life. And number four, many disciples desert Jesus. That really hit me today. Something strange there. Jesus feeds 5,000. Jesus walks on the water. Jesus is the bread of life. And many turn away from him. What a strange sequence. But my friends, sadly, that's what we're witnessing in the world today. 
And it didn't take God by surprise. Matter of fact, one of the things that convinces me all the more that we're very, very close to the coming of the Lord is he promised there would be a great falling away in the last days. That doesn't mean you and I need to be a statistic. And in John 6, I'm going to read bits and pieces. I may jump over some, but probably by the time we're done here, we will have read most of this chapter. So if you didn't do your Bible reading for the day, maybe you can check off one chapter anyway. John chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and pay attention to these words, and a great crowd, say that with me, great crowd. A great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Man, nothing will draw a crowd like a miracle. You start having testimonies of dead people being raised, tumors disappearing, people throwing away their crutches and jumping out of their wheelchairs. Crowds will gather. That's all good and well. I want to see that. I want, I pray, I cry out to God regularly, Lord, stretch forth your hand to heal mighty signs and wonders. Confirm your word with miracles. I want that. But that's not the end of the chapter. And in verse 5, we again see the great crowd. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And you know the story, and I'm not going to read it all. He fed 5,000 men. And Matthew's gospel tells us he didn't count the women and the children. So I don't know what that means. 10,000? 15,000? Maybe altogether? But the Jewish custom and tradition was to have the men seated separately from the women and the children. So all the gospels simply record the 5,000 men that were fed from what? Five? I like the Bible. It says in verse 9, a little boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. Say small, small. You know what God's been speaking to me? He's very interested in small things. If you were with us on Wednesday night, you heard that. God's not worried about how faithful you're going to be with big stuff. He says, you've been faithful with a few little things. Now I can entrust you with much. We, we think because God's a big God, he's not interested in little stuff. I got news for you, my friend. He's looking at the tiniest little details. And God can do great things with small things. Say that with me. God can do great things with small things. That makes me happy because I'm a small thing. And somehow I believe God can do something with me. I believe God can do something with a small thing. He can take a small loaf, a small fish, and multiply it supernaturally to meet the needs of thousands of people. And you may be looking at your own life today and saying, eh, I'm just small, I'm just little, I'm not very talented, I'm not very rich, I don't have a whole lot of influence, I don't think God, be careful, notice what you're saying, I don't think God can use me to reach thousands. Oh really? Do we dare limit him like that? What did this little boy think? 
I don't think he had a clue what was going to happen to his lunch. But afterwards, they have 12 baskets of leftovers. Now you do the math. Two small fish, five small loaves, and in the end, I got 12 baskets full of leftovers. God can do anything he wants. The key is this little boy gave it to the Lord. When we give our littleness, our smallness, when we give it to the Lord, then it's up to him what he wants to do with it. And he multiplied it. He fed the thousands. And then in verse 14 of John 6, after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet, capital P. This is the prophet who is to come into the world. And notice verse 15. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Man, this guy's popular. We read in this article about his rock star popularity. He was now so well known, so popular, crowds are following him. The next step is we want to make him king. And what did Jesus say? About time you all recognized who I was. Bring the throne. No, he understood it wasn't time for all that. And I like what it says. When he found out that they were planning to make him king, he withdrew to a mountain by himself. I've often thought about that. How many of us would run away when they came wanting to confer some great honor on us? Oh yeah, about time you folks recognized who I was. No, no, that was not the heart of Jesus. He withdrew himself. So far, so good. And again, dropping down to verse 22, after the disciples crossed the lake and Jesus walked on the water to them and suddenly and miraculously they're on the other shore, the crowd is still wondering, where's Jesus? They're they're still following him. They're still seeking him. They still want to be around Jesus. So in verse 22, it says the next day, the crowd, say the crowd, the crowd. We still got a crowd. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd, say the crowd, the crowd crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there. They got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. So we still got a crowd and they're in search of Jesus. What, what more could he want, man? He's working miracles, feeding the thousands, walking on water. He's got this great following. Man, isn't that what every pastor in America dreams of? Having a big following, radio, TV, ministry, big mega church, 5,000, 10,000, 30,000 believers. Man, you've arrived. Or have you? The plot thickens from verse 25 onwards. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? See, they're, they're trying to figure this out. Wait a minute. He was here yesterday. He's here today. How did he get from here to there? 
Well, he walked on water. Jesus answered, I want you to pay close attention, and this is exactly what Marcus Yours was trying to bring out in his article. Um, I was reminded of a famous quote, which originally wasn't really given to pertain particularly to the ministry, but I think it works nicely for the ministry. And this is surely a good description of what's happening in Jesus' ministry at this point. Um, the ministry is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. <laughs> you got to think about that a minute. But isn't that what Jesus did everywhere he went? He comforted the afflicted, but he was often confronting and afflicting people that thought they were right, thought they were fine, thought they had everything that they needed. And Jesus could have very easily at this point said, all right, just make me king. And this is what I've always dreamed about, having a big mega church with thousands of followers. It's not what he says. Verse 26, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Remember my question, why are we following Jesus? They were following him, but he's starting to dig at something very, very critical here. What's your motive? Why are you seeking me? Why are you following me? And basically what he's saying, because a lot of you got a free lunch yesterday. You're not even following me because of the miracles, just because you ate. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On Him, God the Father has placed His seal of approval. Verse 28, Then they asked Him, What must we do to do the works God requires? I can almost picture them, you know, with a notebook ready. All right, give us a list. What are the things we're supposed to do? I think His answer blew them away. This is the work of God to believe. That's it. Well, that's easy, isn't it? Mm, not so fast. Jesus calls it a work. Something you got to work at. Something you're going to have to labor at. This is the work to believe in the one he has sent. And I'm getting way ahead of my story, but we're going to find there were a lot of people in this crowd that were following Jesus that did not believe. Some of you didn't hear that. There were a whole bunch of people following Jesus, but he's going to point out to them they do not believe. Hmm. This is the work to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? They're admitting, we don't believe yet. What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God, now he's really getting into it. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me 
will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. So, summarizing up to this point, we've had great crowds following Jesus. They wanted to make a king out of him. That doesn't seem to be impressing him too much. And meanwhile, as they're all praising him and and all this, he's listening to the Father. And he's hearing things from the Father that he is to tell them. And time and again, he keeps coming around to this point, believe, have faith in the Son of God. But that many of you, verse 36, we read, still do not believe. Still do not believe. And so he's beginning to introduce to them two different topics that go hand in hand. I am the true bread and I'm looking for true faith. True true bread, true faith. A real faith in the Son of God. Now, within this crowd, we begin to hear, and I'm going to go back over a few of the statements we've already read and we're going to read further and see some more. But within this crowd that's following Jesus, we're beginning to identify a much smaller group. Say much smaller group. I'm not making you tell the person next to you. (laughs) Much smaller group. And this group has a couple of characteristics. Verse 37, these are the ones that the Father has given to Jesus. Now you've got to stop and analyze that for a while. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Now, Jesus said, some in this crowd are different. They've been given to me by the Father. Now, in order for you to give something to somebody, what's implied? If I'm going to give Nigel my car, the car was mine. Can I give Nigel Laureen's car? Why? Because it ain't mine. God can't give to Jesus something that doesn't belong to him. There were certain ones in this crowd that already belonged to God and God is now giving them to Jesus. Very powerful. Very powerful. Not everyone in the crowd fit into that category. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Wow. Verse 39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all he has given me. You find this all throughout the Gospel of John. Those whom the Father gave to me. A second thing we we read in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
So out of that whole crowd that was physically following Jesus, there were only a few, perhaps, that were truly experiencing, feeling this draw, unless the Father draws him. Something like a magnet was pulling on the hearts of some of the men and women and young people in that great crowd. They couldn't probably explain it, but something was capturing their heart. Something was was grabbing their life. And here Jesus calls it the Father drawing you. It says no one can come. No one can truly come to Jesus unless they've had that experience of being drawn by the Father. And then finally, and I'm getting way ahead of myself, but in verse 65, each time Jesus changes the words a little bit, but he's really saying the same thing. This is why I told you that no one... What's no one mean? Okay, just making sure you're still awake. No one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. You see, we can't do this on our own. We have to be enabled. We have to be called. We have to be drawn. God has to supernaturally do something inside of a person before they can truly come to Jesus. And I can testify to that. I can tell you almost to the day when I began to experience as a sinner, as an atheist, long-haired, I know it's hard to believe, but I was a long-haired, pot-smoking hippie playing in a rock band. And this following Jesus was a bunch of stupid nonsense. I called all these people Jesus freaks. You're crazy, man, following Jesus. I, I had to go to church as a kid. I certainly don't want to go back to that place anymore. But for months before God finally got a hold of my life, something began to tug at my heart. Something began to draw me. I didn't know what it was. It was long after I became saved, baptized, and filled with the Holy Spirit. Then I started to look back and I go, that's what it is when the Father starts to draw you. So, within the crowd, we have this much smaller group that have been singled out by the Father. They're being called, drawn, and enabled by the Father to come to Jesus. Now, let's continue along from verse 41. After he finishes talking about being the bread that comes down from heaven and all of that, something's starting to happen in the crowd. They don't want to make him king anymore. He's starting to get on their nerves. He's starting to afflict them with his message. And verse 41 says, At this, the Jews began to grumble about him. Huh. I can't imagine any grumbling going on in the church. Everybody's always happy, right? Grumbling about him. Is that right? Grumbling about him. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? Jesus steps in, stop grumbling among yourselves. Huh? He knew exactly what was going on. You know, let me just pause here for a minute and tell you, maybe it's taken me 40 years to learn this. Maybe I haven't even learned it yet, but I'm going to give you some free advice. We often want to learn only about the benefits of following Christ. And there are many benefits. 
I, I wouldn't trade this life for anything. Just to know my sins are forgiven, man, that's a biggie. That's a biggie. But there are lots of benefits for following Christ. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name and forget not all of his benefits. Who forgives all of my sins. Who heals all of my diseases. Man, there are benefits to following Christ. However, we often want to stop there. We often only want to learn about the benefits of following Christ, but he repeatedly taught about the costs of discipleship. The costs. We don't like that part. Oh, preacher, just tell us about the benefits today, and we'll all go home and be blessed. But you know, there comes a time where, like we're finding in this chapter, where God begins to confront us with some certain things. Why are you following me? Why are you a Christian? Why are you in church? What what are you doing here? What is your life all about? Are you just coming to get fed? Just coming to get your belly full? Just coming to see a few miracles and then go back? Stop grumbling, he tells them. And then in verse 44, no one, what's no one mean? Hearing that a lot, right? No one can come to me. What? Wait a minute. They, they already had. There's crowds around him. Maybe he needs to define to us what it means to come to him. Because obviously being in the crowd there that day is not the same thing as what he's talking about here. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. And listen to this next part. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from Him comes to me. Verse 45. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from Him comes to me. Hmm. This group seems to be getting smaller and smaller. Let's summarize again. This smaller group within the crowd that is truly coming to Christ... They've been called. They've been drawn. They belong to the Father, and the Father is now giving them to Jesus. They've been hearing from the Father, and the Father has been teaching them things. Is that right? Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from Him comes to me. So they first had some sort of an experience with God the Father. God the Father was revealing something to this smaller group. And they're not there to get their bellies filled. They're not there just to be dazzled by a few signs or wonders or miracles. Something is consuming them. Something is drawing their innermost being to this man named Jesus. They can't explain it. They may not understand it, but something has gripped their lives now. All right, let's go a little further. Down in verse 51... He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. He's being as clear as he possibly can now. I came down from heaven. I came down from heaven to be bread for humanity. Verse 52, do they want to make him king now? What does it say? 52. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? 
I looked at some other translations. It, it literally means they were very angry. And they were fighting. They were quarreling. They were striving over what they're hearing from this man, Jesus. They're really getting riled up now. Remember? Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. The comfortable are now getting afflicted. Something is starting to rouse them up. And they're really angry. And here's Jesus' answer. Oh, guys, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend you. Let, let me let me explain this in a different way. I don't, I don't want anybody to be upset with the message today. Is that what he said? Verse 53. I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. I have never heard any teaching like this before. Before Jesus, I've never heard anything so bizarre and strange. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And I've heard preachers try to say that what he was talking about here was taking communion eating my flesh and drinking my blood friends what we just did a little while ago is very easy (laughs) eat a piece of bread and drink a little bit of grape juice that that's not hard for anyone these folks obviously understood he was talking about something different than just coming to a table and partaking in a little ritual how do i know that by their response. Verse 60 tells me they understood what he was talking about. On hearing it, and I want you to notice something very dramatic has just now happened in verse 60. In verse 41, it says the Jews began to grumble. In verse 52, it says the Jews began to argue sharply. But now in verse 60, what does it say? Many of his disciples, not few, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. And I understand what I'm talking to you about today is hard. This isn't easy. It's not hard to understand. They understood it. They didn't say this is a hard teaching. Who can understand it? What did they say? Who can accept it? Ah, whole different animal. We understand, Lord, but we don't accept what you're saying. Who can accept this hard teaching? Well, what's so hard about it? Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Most people understand the same thing from that. What he's really saying, unless you partake of my life, partake of my sufferings, partake of the cross, you have no place, you have no part, you have no life. That's hard. Wait, wait, wait. I thought becoming a Christian just meant raising my hand, signing a card, and becoming a member. They they didn't explain all this to me at the beginning. That's the problem. Jesus made these things clear to people early on so they knew what they were doing. 
We do people a great disservice by saying, oh, just accept Jesus and you're going to have a wonderful life. Yeah, you will. A wonderful life because your sins are forgiven and you're going to heaven. But you will be persecuted. You'll go through trials. You'll go through sufferings. And if we don't explain that to people from the very beginning, we're misleading them and we're deceiving them. And they will eventually have a trial or a problem in their life and they'll get all disgruntled and discouraged and say, man, I'm not going to church anymore. I'm not going to be a Christian. They didn't tell me all this when I signed up. This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? You know, in 1 Corinthians 5, we're told that Jesus Christ is our Passover. And you have to know your Bible pretty well to understand all the implications of that. Christ is my Passover. And if you don't know it, and we don't have time this morning, you need to go back to Exodus 12 and read about the Passover. Well, the Passover centered around a lamb. A lamb that was sacrificed for each household. The, the lamb was put to death The blood of the lamb was spread over the doorpost and the angel of death passed over their house that night. That's why it's called Passover. But it involved the death of a lamb. But that's not all. After they killed the lamb and put the blood on their door, part of the Passover celebration was they had to eat the lamb. Oh, I'll take the leg, thank you. No. The law was very specific. You need to eat the whole lamb, the whole thing. And unless anybody wasn't real clear on what the Bible meant, it specifically said, eat the whole lamb, the head. How many like lamb's head? Eat the head, the legs, and the inner parts. My translation, the guts. Eat it all. So the Israelites were taught that in the shadow of Passover that they did when they were coming out of Egypt. Paul, writing to the church, says, Christ is our Passover. And we all get excited. Oh, praise God, the blood of Jesus over my door. Devil can't touch me. I'm healed. I'm forgiven. I'm saved. Wonderful. But now Jesus says, "Uh, you left out one detail. You also need to eat the lamb. All of it. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And the best I can understand this, and maybe words can't even explain it, what he's inviting us to do is to really partake of his life. Partake of him. Not just mentally believe in him, but really begin to eat and drink and experience the whole life of Jesus Christ. Now... Coming back to verse 60, on hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Look at verse 61. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, no, no, fellow, I'm sorry. Let let me explain this. Is that what he did? Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Now, I don't know how he said that. And I may be getting the the spirit of this wrong, but what I understand him to be saying when he turned to the twelve is, you got a problem with that? You got a problem with this teaching? Why are we following Jesus? I hope you don't misinterpret me this morning. I'm not trying to be mean. 
I'm not deliberately trying to upset people or hurt people, but I've made a decision in my own ministry. I'm not about big crowds. I, I don't plan on having a big, huge, mega church when I die and go be with the Lord. I just want to go be with the Lord. And I, don't, I want to be faithful to Him until that day. And whether it's 5 or 15 or 500, it really doesn't matter. But I want to be faithful to do what God called me to do. And that was go into all the world and make disciples. Disciples, not crowds, not numbers. Not build big temples and fill them up with people who don't even know why they're there. Does this offend you? You know, the word offend is an interesting word and it's translated differently. Your Bible may say stumble. Uh, it's translated different ways. It comes from a Greek word called scandaliso. We get the word scandal or scandalize from it. And it literally means to make somebody trip or stumble or fall. And the Bible tells us very clearly, Jesus Christ is that rock of stumbling, that stone of offense. The scandalon. Hmm, they didn't tell me about this when I first got saved. You mean Jesus is going to offend me? Not in the way that we think. We use the word offend in a different sense. <clears throat> but what he's talking about is some people are already stumbling over what he's been teaching them. They're getting tripped up by what he has shared with them. And he asks his own disciples, are you getting tripped up too? Are you going to stumble over this hard teaching? And then in verse uh, 62, he continues, What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Now, who's he talking to? Who is he talking to now? Jews or disciples? He's talking to the disciples. And yet, look at verse 64. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. Wow. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Remember, I read you those major headings at the beginning. Uh, what were they again? Jesus feeds 5,000. Jesus walks on the water. Jesus, the bread of life. Many disciples desert Jesus. Put verse 66 up, and I want you to ponder this very carefully today. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Many turned back and no longer followed him. They were stumbled. They were tripped up. They were offended by the rock of offense. They were stumbled by this hard teaching. What was the teaching again? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. They must have understood what he was talking about because a lot of them ran away at that point. Now, <clears throat> if Jesus had any interest in starting a big mega church and having a, an international galactic ministry of multiplied thousands and millions, he should have stopped right where he was while he was still a little bit ahead and said, all right, boys, 
Let's take it easy here for a minute. Let me explain to you what's going on. I don't want anybody else to get discouraged here. Look at verse 67. Now he's talking to the 12. You do not want to leave too, do you? Man, that's hard. You want to hear my translation? Peter, James, John, everybody else has deserted. There's the door. This guy's serious. You see, the Jesus... Uh, we may have in our minds from a movie we saw or a book we read or a picture we saw may not be the real Jesus. This is the real Jesus. He's serious about having disciples who are committed to him. And this is what he was looking for. The response that comes from Peter. How many like Peter? I like Peter. Of all the disciples, I think I'm the most like him or he's the most like me or both, whatever whatever way you want to take it. Peter was a mess. He had all kinds of flaws and rough edges and he had a big mouth and he would always put his foot in his mouth. But here we see something very precious about Peter. You do not want to leave too, do you? Peter answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Go back to verse 68 for a second. Years ago, I was reading this and two words jumped out of this scripture and they've stayed with me ever since. Peter didn't say, where are we going to go? To whom? To whom shall we go? Those two words reveal something about Peter. With all of his rough edges, with all of his mess, he was one of this small group that had heard from the Father, that was being drawn by the Father, and something inside of him is now attached to Jesus, and nothing can separate him from Christ. To whom shall we go? He he wasn't looking for a place to run. He was concentrating on his relationship with Jesus. Jesus Christ. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One of God. We believe and we know. Now, let me sum this all up very quickly. Why are we following Jesus? I got some questions to go along with that one. Number one, has the Father called, drawn, taught, spoken to me? Doesn't matter about the person on your left or your right or your parents or your children. Has the Father called me, drawn me, taught me, and spoken to me? And I would highly recommend you go back and reread John 6 and look at all those places where Jesus said, no one, no one, no one can come to me unless they've had this experience of the Father calling them, the Father drawing them, the Father teaching them, and the Father speaking to them. Number two, Peter said, we believe and know who you are. Very similar to the uh, passage that's given in Matthew, where Jesus said, who do you say I am? Who spoke up first? Peter. I know you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Good, Peter. You didn't learn that in Sunday school. My Father revealed that to you. And that's my second question. Do we really know who Jesus is? Do we have a revelation of who he is? That he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Holy One of God, that he is the Word. Number three, 
Do we believe? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Not so fast. We had a whole bunch of people following Jesus here. And in the end, we found out they didn't believe. And just sitting in church doesn't make us a believer. It's a personal thing that hinges on these first two points. Has God called me? Do I really know by revelation who Jesus is? And the fourth question is relating specifically to this whole thing about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Are we willing to eat, drink, and partake of Christ? That that goes way beyond just a casual attendance in church once in a while. And I want to quickly read from Philippians chapter 3. And it's interesting because in this passage, Paul, talking about his own life, his own relationship with Jesus, he talks about sharing, partaking in Christ in a way that I think is foreign to most Christians in America. Philippians 3, starting with verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Look at verse 10, and I want you to read it with me. Ready? I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Next verse. 11. And so, somehow, to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ is living in me now. There was an exchange. Paul died. Jesus has taken over. Jesus is now living and expressing his life through Paul. And finally, we talked a little bit at the table this morning about covenant. This is a very important concept, and we're probably going to visit it again at some point in the future. The Bible, from cover to cover, talks about covenants. God is a God who likes to enter into a covenant with people. It's, it's more than a contract. It's more than a, an agreement. It's a committed relationship. And my question to all of us, what is my covenant with God today? What is my commitment to Jesus Christ? You see, being a disciple is all about commitment. And what I hear from Peter there, to whom shall we go? Peter had a commitment with Jesus. Now, yes, he denied him. He messed up when the going got tough. But you know what? He didn't desert him. He came back and he stayed and he became a mighty pillar in the early church. I believe because of that covenant, that commitment that he had made with Jesus Christ. And sooner or later, things are going to get a little hot. Things are going to get a little tough. And you and I are going to wonder, hmm, maybe it's time to leave. Maybe it's time to quit. But then the question arises, not where shall I go, to whom 
To whom shall I go? You see, because our relationship, our commitment is not to man. It's not to an organization. Our commitment, our covenant is to Jesus Christ. And we need to firm that commitment up if we're going to be a true disciple. I know him. I have a revelation of who he is. The Father has revealed in my heart who Jesus is, and that's why I'm following him. That's why I believe in him. That's why I want to partake, as we read here, even in his sufferings, even becoming conformable to his very death. What are we seeing? I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back until it gets really bad, right? Or no turning back, period. May God bring us to that place in our relationship with Jesus where because we know who he is, we know what he's done for us, we know how we've been called to follow him, there really is no plan B. To whom shall I go? You have words of eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, this is a hard teaching. It's not hard to understand, but it's hard for us to accept and it's hard for us to put into practice. And God, even as I've been the messenger delivering this message, I'd be the first to say that this is hard, Lord. This is hard. And God, you're going to need to help us, especially in these dark days that lie ahead when it's not going to be popular to follow Jesus. And we're going to find ourselves in a smaller and smaller group. And yet, Lord, we need that commitment, that covenant that I have decided to follow Jesus. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. Lord, you fed the 5,000, you healed the sick, you walked on water, and yet many deserted you. God, you've told us in these last days there will be a great falling away, but I pray that that will not happen to anyone hearing my voice today. That God, your Holy Spirit and your word will so grip us that we will be your disciples to the very end. God, I thank you and I praise you for your word. You have words of eternal life. To whom, where else can we go but to the one, the source of eternal life? God, I pray this word would be sealed in our hearts. We would not be hearers only but you would make us doers of your word. And he who began a good work in us will complete it for the day of Jesus Christ. And Lord, your sacrifice on Calvary, your blood shed for us will not be in vain, but it will bring forth a generation of disciples committed and on fire for you. We give ourselves, we surrender to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.